0: Chapter 37, Part 2 of The Cloister and the Hearth by Charles Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. The next day the thieves were tried. The pièces de conviction were reduced in number, to the great chagrin of the little clerk, by the interment of the bones, but there was still a pretty show. A thief's hand struck off flagrante delicto, a murdered woman's hair, the abbot's axe, and other tools of crime. The skulls, etc., were sworn to by the constables who had found them. Evidence was lax in that age and place. They all confessed but the landlord. And Manon was called to bring the crime home to him her evidence was conclusive. He made a vain attempt to shake her credibility by drawing from her that her own sweetheart had been one of the gang, and that she had held her tongue so long as he was alive. The public prosecutor came to the aid of his witness, and elicited that a knife had been held to her throat, and her own sweetheart sworn with solemn oaths to kill her should she betray them, and that this terrible threat, and not the mere fear of death, had glued her lips. The other thieves were condemned to be hanged, and the landlord to be broken on the wheel. He uttered a piercing cry when his sentence was pronounced. As for poor Manon, she became the subject of universal criticism. Nor did opinion any longer run dead in her favour, it divided into two broad currents, and, strange to relate, the majority of her own sex took her part, and the males were but equally divided, which hardly happens once in a hundred years. Perhaps some lady will explain the phenomenon. As for me, I am a little shy of explaining things I don't understand. It has become so common. Meantime, Had she been a lover of notoriety, she would have been happy, for the town talked of nothing but her. The poor girl, however, had but one wish to escape the crowd that followed her, and hide her head somewhere where she could cry over her pondard, whom all these proceedings brought vividly back to her affectionate remembrance. Before he was hanged, he had threatened her life, "'But she was not one of your fastidious girls "'who love their male divinities any the less "'for beating them, kicking them, or killing them, "'but rather the better, "'provided these attentions are interspersed "'with occasional caresses. "'So it would have been odd indeed "'had she taken offence at a mere threat of that sort. "'He had never threatened her with a rival.' "'She sobbed single-mindedly. "'Meantime,' the inn was filled with thirsters for a sight of her, who feasted and drank, to pass away the time till she should deign to appear. When she had been sobbing some time, there was a tap at her door, and the landlord entered with a proposal. "'Nay, weep not, good lass, your fortune it is made, an you like. Say the word, and you are chambermaid of the white Hart nay nay," said manon with a fresh burst of grief never more will i be a servant in an inn i'll go to my mother the landlord consoled and coaxed her and she became calmer but none the less determined against his proposal the landlord left her but ere long he returned and made her another proposal would she be his wife and landlady of the white Hart, you do ill to mock me she said sorrowfully nay sweetheart i mock thee not i am too old for sorry jests say you the word and you are my partner for better for worse she looked at him and saw he was in earnest on this she suddenly reined hard to the memory of le Pendard, The tears came in a torrent, being the last, and she gave her hand to the landlord of the white art, and broke a gold crown with him, in sign of plighted troth. "'We will keep it dark till the house is quiet,' said the landlord. "'Aye,' said she, "'but meantime, prithee, give me linen to hem, or work to do, for the time hangs on me like lead.' her betrothed's eye brightened at this housewifely request, and he brought her up two dozen flagons of various sizes to clean and polish. She gathered complacency as she reflected that by a strange turn of fortune all this bright pewter was to be hers. Meantime, the landlord went downstairs, and, falling in with our friends, drew them aside into the bar. He then addressed Denis with considerable solemnity. "'We are old acquaintances, and you want not for sagacity. Now advise me in a strait. My custom is somewhat declining. This girl Manon is the talk of the town. See how full the inn is to-night. She doth refuse to be my chambermaid. I have half a mind to marry her. What think you?' Shall I say the word? Denis, in reply, merely opened his eyes wide with amazement. The landlord turned to Gerard with a half inquiring look. Nay, sir, said Gerard, I am too young to advise my seniors and betters. No matter. Let us hear your thought. Well, sir, it was said of a good wife by the ancients, Bene quae latuid, bene vixit that is she is the best wife that is least talked of but here male quae patuit were as near the mark therefore an you bear the last good will why not club purses with Denis and me and convey her safe home with a the dowry then mayhap some rustical person in her own place may be brought to wife her why so many words said Denis. "'This old fox is not the ass he affects to be.' "'Oh, that is your advice, is it?' said the landlord testily. "'Well, then, we shall soon know who is the fool, you or me, "'for I have spoken to her as it happens. "'And what is more, she has said, aye, "'and she is polishing the flagons at this moment.' "'Oh-ho!' said Denis dryly. "'Twas an ambuscade. "'Well, in that case my advice is, run for the notary tie the noose and let us three drink the bride's health till we see six sots a-tippling and shall ay, now you are to sense in ten minutes a civil marriage was effected upstairs before a notary and his clerk and our two friends in ten minutes more the white hind dead sick of seclusion had taken her place within the bar and was serving out liquids and bustling, and her colour rising a little. In six little minutes more she soundly rated a careless servant-girl for carrying a nipican of wine or eye and spilling good liquor. During the evening she received across the bar eight offers of marriage, some of them from respectable burghers. Now the landlord and our two friends had in perfect innocence— ensconced themselves behind a screen to drink at their ease the new couple's health the above comedy was thrown in for their entertainment by bounteous fate they heard the proposals made one after another and uninventive manon's invariable answer serviteur you are a day after the fair the landlord chuckled and looked good-natured superiority at both his late advisers, with their traditional notions that men shun a woman quae patuit, i.e., who has become the town talk. But Denis scarce noticed the spouse's triumph over him. He was so occupied with his own over Gerard. At each municipal tender of undying affection he turned almost purple with the effort it cost him not to roar with glee, and driving his elbow into the deep-meditating and much-puzzled pupil of antiquity, whispered, "'Le peu que sont les hommes!' The next morning, Gerard was eager to start, but Denis was under a vow to see the murderers of the golden-haired girl executed. Gerard respected his vow— but avoided his example. He went to bid the curé farewell instead, and sought and received his blessing. About noon the travellers got clear of the town. Just outside the south gate they passed the gallows. It had eight tenants. The skeleton of Manon's late wept, and now being fast-forgotten lover, and the bodies of those who had so nearly taken our travellers' lives. A hand was nailed to the beam, and hard by, on a huge wheel, was clawed the dead landlord, with every bone in his body broken to pieces. Gerard averted his head and hurried by. Denis lingered and crowed over his dead foes. Times are changed, my lads, since we two sat shaking in the cold, awaiting you seven to come and cut our throats. Fie, Denis, death squares all reckonings. Prithee, pass on without another word, if you prize my respect a groat. To this earnest remonstrance, Denis yielded. He even said thoughtfully, You have been better brought up than I. About three in the afternoon they reached a little town with the people buzzing in knots. The wolves, starved by the cold, had entered, and eaten two grown-up persons overnight in the main street, so some were blaming the eaten. None but fools or knaves are about after nightfall. Others the law, for not protecting the town, and others the corporation, for not enforcing what laws there were. "'Bah! this is nothing to us,' said Denis, and was for resuming their march. "'Aye, but tis,' remonstrated Gerard. "'What, are we the pair they ate?' "'No, but we may be the next pair.' "'Aye, neighbour, said an ancient man, "'tis the town's fault for not obeying the ducal ordinance.' which bids every shopkeeper light a lamp o'er his door at sunset, and burn it till sunrise. On this, Denis asked him, somewhat derisively, what made him fancy rush-dips would scare away empty wolves? Why, mutton-fat is all their joy. "'Tis not the fat, vain man, but the light. All ill things hate light, especially wolves, and the imps that lurk, I ween under their fur.' Example, Paris City stands in a wood like, and the wolves do howl around it all night. Yet of late years wolves come but little in the streets, for why, in that borough the watchmen do thunder at each door that is dark, and make the weary white rise and light. Tis my son tells me he is a great voyager, my son Nicholas. In further explanation, he assured them, that previously to that ordinance no city had been worse infested with wolves than Paris. A troop had boldly assaulted the town in 1420, and in 1438 they had eaten fourteen persons in a single month between Montmartre and the gate Saint-Antoine, and that not a winter month even, but September. And as for the dead, which nightly lay in the streets, slain in midnight brawls or assassinated, the wolves had used to devour them, and to grub up the fresh graves in the churchyards, and tear out the bodies. Here a thoughtful citizen suggested that probably the wolves had been bridled of late in Paris, not by candle-lights, but owing to the English having been driven out of the kingdom of France. For those English— be very wolves themselves for fierceness and greediness. What marvel, then, that under their rule our neighbors of France should be wolf-eaten!' This logic was too suited to the time and place not to be received with acclamation. But the old man stood his ground. "'I grant ye those islanders are wolves, but two-legged ones, and little apt to favor their four-footed cousins.' One greedy thing loveth it, another I trow not by the same token and this too I have from my boy Nicole, Sir Wolf dare not show his nose in London city, though 'tis smaller than Paris, and thick woods hard by the north wall, and therein great store of deer, and wild boars as rife as flies at midsummer. Sir, said Gerald, you seem conversant with wild beasts prithee advise my comrade here and me we would not waste time on the road and if we may go forward to the next town with reasonable safety young man i trow twere an idle risk it lacks but an hour of dusk and you must pass nigh a wood where lurk some thousands of these half-starved vermin rank cowards single but in great bands bold as lions Wherefore I read you, sojourn here the night, and journey on betimes. By the dawn the vermin will be tired out with roaring and rampaging, and mayhap will have filled their lank bellies with flesh of my good neighbours here, the unteachable fools. Gerard hoped not, and asked could he recommend them to a good inn. "'Hum! There is the tête d'or,' My granddaughter keeps it. She is a mijore, but not so knavish as most hotel-keepers, and her house indifferent clean. Hey, for the tête d'or, struck in Denis, decided by this ineradicable foible. On the way to it, Gerard inquired of his companion what a mijore was. Denis laughed at his ignorance. Not know what a mijore is, Why, all the world knows that. It is neither more nor less than a miseré. As they entered the tête-door, they met a young lady richly dressed, with a velvet chaperon on her head, which was confined by law to the nobility. They unbonneted and louted low, and she curtsied, but fixed her eye on vacancy the while, which had a curious rather than a genial effect. However, nobility was not so unassuming in those days as it is now, so they were little surprised. But the next minute supper was served, and, lo, in came this princess and carved the goose. "'Holy St. Bavon cried Gerard. 'Twas the landlady all the while.' A young woman, cursed with nice white teeth, and lovely hands, for these beauties being misallied to homely features had turned her head. She was a feeble carver, carving not for the sake of others but herself, i.e. to display her hands. When not carving, she was eternally either taking a pin out of her head or her body, or else putting a pin into her head or her body. To display her teeth, she laughed indifferently at gay or grave, and from ear to ear, and she sat at ease, with her mouth ajar. Now there is an animal in creation of no great general merit, but it has the eye of a hawk for affectation. It is called a boy. And Gerard was but a boy still in some things, swift to see, and to loathe affectation so Denis sat casting sheep's eyes and gerard daggers at one comedian presently in the midst of her minauderies she gave a loud shriek and bounded out of her chair like hair from form and ran backwards out of the room uttering little screams, and holding her farthingale tight down to her ankles with both hands, and as she scuttled out of the door, a mouse scuttled back to the wainscot in a state of equal, and perhaps more reasonable, terror. The guests, who had risen in anxiety at the principal yell, now stood irresolute a while, then sat down laughing. The tender Denis, to whom a woman's cowardice, being a sexual trait, seemed to be a lovely and pleasant thing, said he would go and comfort her, and bring her back. "'Nay, nay, nay, for pity's sake, let her bide,' cried Gerard earnestly. "'Oh, blessed mouse, sure some saint sent thee to our aid!' Now at his right hand sat a sturdy, middle-aged burgher, whose conduct up to date had been cynical. He had never budged, nor even rested his knife at all this fracas. He now turned on Gerard, and inquired haughtily, whether he really thought that Grimassiere was afraid of a mouse. "'Ay!' she screamed hearty. "'Where is the coquette that cannot scream to the life? These she-tavern-keepers,' do still ape the nobles. Some princess or duchess hath lain here a night, that was honestly afeard of a mouse, having been brought up to it, and this ape hath seen her, and said, I will start at a mouse, and make a coil. She has no more right to start at a mouse than to wear that fur on her bosom, and that velvet on her monkey's head. I am of the town, young man, and I have known the Mijorais all her life, and I mind when she was no more afeard of a mouse than she is of a man. He added that she was fast emptying the inn with these saint All the world is so sick of her hands that her very kinsfolk will not venture themselves anigh eye them. He concluded, with something like a sigh, the Tête d'Or, "'was a thriving hostelry under my old chum, her good father. "'But she is digging its grave tooth and nail.' "'Tooth and nail! Good! A right merry conceit and a true,' said Gerard. "'But the right merry conceit was an inadvertence as pure as snow, "'and the stout burgher went to his grave and never knew what he had done.' for just then attention was attracted by Denis returning pompously. He inspected the apartment minutely and with a high official air. He also looked solemnly under the table, and during the whole inquisition a white hand was placed conspicuously on the ledge of the open door, and a tremulous voice inquired behind it whether the horrid thing was quite gone. "'The enemy has retreated, bag and baggage,' said Denis, and handed in the trembling fair, who, sitting down, apologised to her guests for her foolish fears, with so much earnestness, grace, and seeming self-contempt, that, but for a sour grin on his neighbour's face, Gerard would have been taken in, as all the other strangers were. Dinner ended— The young landlady begged an Augustine friar at her right hand to say grace. He delivered a longish one. The moment he began, she clapped her white hands piously together, and held them up joined for mortals to admire. "'Tis an excellent pose for taper-white fingers, and cast her eyes upward towards heaven, and felt as thankful to it as a magpie does while cutting off with your thimble. After supper, the two friends went to the street door and eyed the marketplace. The mistress joined them, and pointed out the town hall, the borough jail, St. Catherine's Church, etc. This was courteous, to say the least. But the true cause soon revealed itself. The fair hand— was poked right under their eyes every time an object was indicated, and Gerard eyed it like a basilisk, and longed for a bunch of nettles. The sun set, and the travellers, few in number, drew round the great roaring fire, and, omitting to go on the spit, were frozen behind, though roasted in front. For if the German stoves were oppressively hot, the French salle manger, were bitterly cold, and above all stormy. In Germany, men sat bareheaded round the stove, and took off their upper clothes, but in burgundy they kept on their hats, and put on their warmest furs to sit round the great open chimney-places, at which the external air rushed furiously from door and ill-fitting window. However, It seems their medieval backs were broad enough to bear it, for they made themselves not only comfortable, but merry, and broke harmless jests over each other in turn. For instance, Denis's new shoes, though not in direct communication, had this day exploded with twin-like sympathy and unanimity. "'Where do you buy your shoon, soldier?' asked one. "'Denis,' looked askant at Gerard, and, not liking the theme, shook it off. "'I gather em off the trees by the roadside,' he said surlily. "'Then you gather these too ripe,' said the hostess, who was only a fool externally. Ay, rotten ripe,' observed another inspecting them. Gerard said nothing, but pointed the circular satire by pantomime. He slyly put out both his feet, one after another under Denis's eye, with their German shoes, on which a hundred leagues of travel had produced no effect. They seemed hewn out of a rock. At this, I'll twist the smooth varlet's neck that sold me mine, shouted Denis in huge wrath, and confirmed the threat with singular oaths peculiar— to the medieval military. The landlady put her fingers in her ears, thereby exhibiting the hand in a fresh attitude. "'Tell me when he has done his orisons, somebody,' said she mincingly, and after that they fell to telling stories. Gerard, when his turn came, told the adventure of Denis and Gerard at the inn in Domfront, and so well— that the hearers were wrapped into sweet oblivion of the very existence of Mijoret and hands, But this made her very uneasy, and she had recourse to her grand coup. This misdirected genius had for a twelve-month past practised yawning, and could do it now at any moment so naturally as to set all creation gaping, could all creation have seen her, by this means, she got in all her charms. For first, she showed her teeth, then out of good breeding, you know, closed her mouth with three taper fingers. So the moment Gerard's story got too interesting and absorbing, she turned to, and made yawns, and croix sur la bouche. This was already fine, but Gerard was an artist and artists are chilled by gaping auditors he bore up against the yawns a long time but finding they came from a bottomless reservoir lost both heart and temper and suddenly rising in mid-narrative said but i weary our hostess and i am tired myself so good-night whipped a candle off the dresser whispered Denis, i cannot stand her and marched to bed in a moment. The Mijorel coloured and bit her lips. She had not intended her by-play for Gerard's eye, and she saw in a moment she had been rude and silly and publicly rebuked. She sat with cheek on fire and a little natural water in her eyes, and looked ten times comelier and more womanly and interesting than she had done all day. The desertion of the best narrator broke up the party, and the unassuming Denis approached the meditative Mijoret, and invited her, in the most flattering terms, to gamble with him. She started from her reverie, looked him down into the earth's centre with chilling dignity, and consented, for she remembered all in a moment, what a show of hands gambling admitted! The soldier and the Mijore rattled the dice, in which sport she was so taken up with her hands that she forgot to cheat, and Denis won an écout au soleil of her. She fumbled slowly with her purse, partly because her sex do not burn to pay debts of honour, partly to admire the play of her little knuckles, peeping between their soft white cushions. Diddy proposed a compromise. Three silver francs I win of you, fair hostess. Give me now three kisses of this white hand, and we'll e'en cry quits. You are malapert," said the lady with a toss of her head. Besides, they are so dirty. See, they are like ink, and to convince him, She put them out to him, and turned them up and down. They were no dirtier than cream fresh from the cob, and she knew it. She was eternally washing and scenting them. Denis read the objection like the observant warrior he was, seized them and mumbled them. Finding him so appreciative of her charm, she said timidly, "'Will you do me a kindness, good soldier?' "'A thousand, fair hostess, and you will?' "'Nay, I ask but one. "'Tis to tell thy comrade I was right sorry to lose his most thrilling story, "'and I hope he will tell me the rest to-morrow morning. "'Meantime, I shall not sleep for thinking, aunt. "'Wilt we'll tell him that, to pleasure me?' Ay, I'll tell the young savage. "'But he is not worthy of your condescension, sweet hostess, he would rather be a cider man than a woman any day. So would—ahem! <coughs> he is right. The young women of the day are not worthy of him. Un tas de majorer. He has a good, honest, and right comely face. Anyway, I would not guest of mine. Should think me unmannerly. Not for all the world. Wilt keep faith with me and tell him? On this fair hand I swear it, and thus I seal the pledge. There, no need to melt the wax though. Now go to bed and tell him ere you sleep. The perverse toad, I thank thee, Manon, for teaching me that word, was inclined to bestow her slight affections upon Gerard. Not that she was inflammable, far less so than many that passed for prudes in the town. But Gerard possessed a triple attraction that has ensnared coquettes in all ages. One, he was very handsome. Two, he did not admire her the least. Three, he had given her a good slap in the face. Denis woke Gerard and gave the message. Gerard was not enchanted. "'Dost wake a tired man to tell him that?' Am I to be pestered with mijoed by night as well as day? But I tell thee, novice, thou hast conquered her. Trust to my experience. Her voice sank to melodious whispers, and the cunning jade did in a manner bribe me to carry thee her challenge to love's lists, for so I read her message. Denis then, assuming the senior and the man of the world, told Gerard the time was come to show him how a soldier understood friendship and camaraderie. Italy was now out of the question. Fate had provided better, and the blind jade, Fortune, had smiled on merit for once. The head of gold, had been a prosperous inn, would be again with a man at its head. A good general laid far-sighted plans, but was always ready to abandon them, should some brilliant advantage offer, and to reap the full harvest of the unforeseen. "'Twas chiefly by this trait great leaders defeated little ones, for these latter could do nothing not cut and dried beforehand. "'Sorry friendship that would marry me to a Mijore, interposed Gerard, yawning. "'Comrade, be reasonable!' "'Tis not the friskiest sheep that falls down the cliff. "'All creatures must have their fling soon or late. "'And why not a woman? "'What more frivolous than a kitten, "'what graver than a cat?' "'Hast a good eye for nature, Denis,' said Gerard. "'that I proclaim.' "'A better for thine interest, boy. "'Trust then to me. "'These little doves, they are my study day and night.' Happy the man whose wife taketh her fling before wedlock, and who trippeth up the altar-steps instead of down them. Marriage it almost changeth them for better, or else for worse. Why, Gerard, she is honest when all is done, and he is no man, nor half a man, that cannot mould any honest lass like a bit of warm wax, and she I aside him, at bed and board. I tell thee, in one month, thou wilt make of this coquette the matron the most sober in the town and of all its wives the one most docile and submissive why she is half-tamed already nine in ten meek and mild ones had gently hated thee like poison all their lives for wounding of their hidden pride but she for an affront proffers affection by joshua his bugle a generous lass and void of petty malice. When thou wast gone, she sat a-thinking, and spoke not. A sure sign of love in one of her sex, for of all things else they speak, ere they think. Also her voice did sink exceeding low in discoursing of thee, and murmured sweetly, Another infallible sign, the bolt hath struck, and rankles in her. O, joyful art silent i see tis settled i shall go alone to romy alone and sad but pillage and pole what care i for that since my dear comrade will stay here landlord of the tete d'or and safe from all the storms of life wilt think of me gerard now and then by thy warm fire of me camped on some windy heath or lying in wet trenches, or wounded on the field, and far from comfort. Nay! And this he said, in a manner truly noble, not comfortless, or cold, or wet, or bleeding, "'Twill still warm my heart to lie on my back, and think that I have placed my dear friend and comrade true in the tete d'or, far from a soldier's ills.' i let you run on, dear Denis,' said Gerard softly, "'because, at each word, you show me the treasure of a good heart. "'But now, bethink thee, my troth is plighted there where my heart it clingeth. "'You so leal, would you make me disloyal?' "'Perdition seize me, but I forgot that,' said Denis. "'No more, then. But hie thee to bed, good Denis, Next to Margaret, I love thee best on earth, and value thy cur d'or far more than a dozen of these tete d'or. So prithee call me at the first blush of rosy-fingered morn, and let's away ere the woman with the hands be stirring. They rose with the dawn and broke their fast by the kitchen fire. "'Denis inquired of the girl whether the mistress was about. "'Nay, but she hath risen from her bed. "'By the same token, I am carrying her this to clean her withal.' "'And she filled the jug with boiling water, and took it upstairs. "'Behold,' said Gerard, "'the very elements must be warmed to suit her skin. "'What had the saint said which still chose the coldest pool?' Away, ere she come down and catch us! They paid the score, and left the tête d'or, while its mistress was washing her hands. End of chapter 37, part 2 Recording by Tom Denham